Good morning. Uh, it's good to see you. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King. Uh, if you're a guest or a visitor, welcome. We are glad that you are with us this morning as we uh, gather for worship, as we sing praise to our God, and as we come to his word. Um, and the portion of his word that we're going to be looking at this morning comes out of Exodus chapter 20. So if you have a Bible, you, uh, you can turn there. The passage is also printed in your order of service. We're going to look at verse 17 this morning. Uh, this is the 10th commandment, and so uh, we are completing our 10-week uh, study of the 10 commandments. We will be... Um, we are not only completing our 10-week study of the Ten Commandments, but uh, this week also marks the end of our uh, time in the book of Exodus for a time. So uh, we are going to take a, a break. I know there's 20 more chapters left in Exodus, um, so we could spend the next few years in it, but, but um, we're going to take a little bit of a break. Um, a little bit is... Um, oh, um, well, it's, you know, it depends on who, who you're talking to as to how little little is. But, um, but uh, we'll come back to the wilderness wanderings maybe in four or five years. So, um, but, uh, but after Easter, we are going to turn to the New Testament and look at some various passages until we come to the summer when we'll return to the Psalms again uh, during our summer months. But, but this is the end of our time in the book of Exodus, and we're ending it with Exodus 20, verse 17. So if you would, please... Follow along in your Bible or your order of service. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, we do ask that as we come to your word, that you would lead us in the way that we are to go. Show us the beauty and wonder of your goodness and your grace to us that is found in your word. Lead us in the way that we are to go and allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to be pleasing to you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, the University of Michigan, a group at the University of Michigan, embarked on a study looking at the emotional well-being and the general happiness of people as they engage with social media. So specifically, what occurs when people are uh, engaging with Facebook and, and looking at Facebook. And so, so they, uh, they examine that. And, you know, Facebook's, uh, Facebook's motto, their, their mission is to try and connect people. So connect people from your past, connect people in different parts of the country or different parts of the world. We show pictures to one another, videos, we're sharing articles. It's a way for us to relationally connect. And so you would assume that the more that we're on Facebook, the happier we'll be because we're meeting with all these people that we connect with, right? Well, that's not what they found. <laughs> Instead, what they found was that the more that people were on Facebook, the more time that they were spending, that their moment-to-moment general well-being and joy didn't incline, but declined. It's fascinating. That the more that people were spending on social media, that they found that their happiness actually went down, not up. Now, the researchers who were doing this study didn't put an official conclusion or official rationale for why this might happen, but one of the authors of the study said this. He said, when you're on a site like Facebook, you get lots of posts about what people are doing. That sets up social comparison. You maybe feel you, your life is not as rich or full as those people you see on Facebook. 
It's this social comparison that occurs. You look and you see these people with these wonderful vacations or these beautiful homes, ripped abs. I know that's what you think when you look at my... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Right? That's what we look at and that's what we see. And we don't simply think, I want a different life. We think, I want that life. I want their life. I want their home. I want their body. I want their ability to run the miles and miles and miles that they are running. I want their job. I want their children. I want their spouse. Whatever it might be, we want their life. No, what what this is is ultimately coveting. Kids, you know what this is like. You don't have to be on social media to understand this, kids. I want you to imagine you're playing, maybe in your playroom, your bedroom, and there's a toy that, that you know, we're not really sure whose it is at this point. It's been part of your family for so long, but, but you know you haven't played with it for years. And in fact, you would be happy if mom just put it out on the garage sale table in a couple weeks or just threw it away because you really don't care about it. You don't want to play with it. You don't want it for yourself. It just can sit there in the corner as long as no one else touches it. Because as soon as your brother or sister grabs and starts playing with it, what do you do? That's mine. I want it. Give it to me. This toy that you were ready to kick to the curb literally just moments ago, you are now wanting to play with because you have to have it. You want it. You desire it. Kids, you do this, but you know what? You know who else does this? (laughs) Your parents and all the adults who are sitting around you. Except we're just much more sly and we're much more subtle about this because we don't sit there and scream out, mine, I want it. But if you could hear our, heart, our minds and you had a glimpse into our hearts, you would see that we are doing the exact same thing. I want it. I deserve it. They don't deserve it. I should have it. I've worked hard enough that that should be mine. And friends, that's what it means to covet. It means to long for something that is not yours. It doesn't mean that we acknowledge something to be good and right. Right? It's, it's good to have a fit body. It's good to have a nice home. It's good to have a job that you enjoy and appreciate. It's good to have a spouse that you love and loves you. Right? Those are good things. It's, coveting isn't wanting good things. It's wanting the good things that other people have that you do not. It is longing for it. It's, it's that saying in our head, if I only had. You've said that before. I've said before, if I only had that person's kids or that person's job or that person's bank account, if I only had a couple dollars more, if I only had enough to retire a couple years earlier, if I only had, and we can do this with anything. We can have this perspective with anything, not just with our possessions. I mean, do you hear how all-encompassing this passage is? You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox or donkey. If you would have stopped there, we would have had some outs, but Moses doesn't stop there. What does he say? Or anything else that is your neighbor's. Basically, he's saying, if you covet anything that is not yours, you are coveting. If only I had. What does that say about our hearts? 
about what we're wanting, where we think we'll find satisfaction. You know, it's fascinating. Um, Francis Schaeffer, the great 20th century apologist, in his wonderful book, True Spirituality, if you haven't read that, I, I would encourage you to take the time to read it. It, is, it truly is wonderful. But in that book, he talks about the Ten Commandments, and he talks about this one in particular, and he says there that every time you break any of the commandments, you've broken this one first. Because did you notice that all the other nine are outward? They're primarily outward, right? Stealing, adultery, murder, they're outward. They're physical expressions. Now, we talked about how there are um, emotional and heart things that occur before we express that, but that's what this is getting at, isn't it? I mean, I can covet, and no one knows whether I am or not. I can do it in my mind. But that coveting will oftentimes express itself in the breaking of one of the other commandments, including you shall have no other gods before me. See, I started to think about that commandment. How does coveting break that commandment? But then I realized Schaefer is absolutely right. Because when we covet, our hearts are consumed with something that is not ours, that has not been given to us. And when our hearts are consumed by that, it means our hearts are not submitting to God. That we are seeking to find joy and happiness ultimate joy and happiness in something other than God, in someone other than God. That's what it means to covet. That's where I want us to begin. That coveting is looking to find happiness or satisfaction apart from God. Now, now the pursuit of happiness, there's nothing wrong with that, right? We want to be happy. God wants us to be happy. I mean, that word blessed in the uh, beatitudes, it can be rendered happy. Happy is the one. So happiness isn't the problem. In fact, Augustine, the bishop of Hippo, he once said, it must be known to all that there can be no doubt that if it were possible to put the question in a common language and ask all men whether they wish to be happy, all would reply they did. Surely happiness is what everyone wants. And we do want it. The problem isn't happiness. The problem is where we derive our ultimate happiness. You see, in Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Isn't that fascinating? The Apostle Paul tells us that to covet is to engage in idolatry. Now, y'all know what idolatry is. It's sometimes been defined as, as um, taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. That's a good definition. But at the root of idolatry is finding happiness or satisfaction or ultimate joy in someone or something other than God. And when we covet, that is exactly what we're doing. We look at others' lives and possessions and families and think, if I only had that, then I would truly be happy. The uh, comedian Jim Carrey, famous comedian, actor, uh, millionaire, Canadian. He's a Canadian, by the way. Uh, so you can, you can use that next year's uh, St. Patrick's Day party. Throw that one out there for a little tidbit. Uh, Jim Carrey. And uh, there was a movie or a documentary made about him 
when he made his movie Man in the Moon about Andy Kaufman, when he portrayed Andy Kaufman. And they did a documentary called Jim and Andy. And in that, uh, Jim Carrey talks about his life growing up and how even from his youngest days, he wanted to be a famous comedian. He wanted to be the funniest man in the world. And he wanted to have millions of dollars and great fame. And, and his parents encouraged him and wanted this dream for him as well. And, and then he got it. When he made this movie, he was at the, the height of his career. He said, I've, I've received it. I, I've been called the funniest man in the world. The fruition of all my dreams. I'm a millionaire. I've had awards. I, I have fame, a beautiful wife, movies. And they said, and I'm not happy. And we know exactly why. Because those things had become an idol to him. Because when you seek happiness apart from God, you are making that thing that will bring you happiness, that you think will bring happiness, an idol. And that will just leave you looking for more and more and more. That's why coveting is idolatry at its root. It's seeking to find happiness apart from God. But but coveting is not only in idolatry. You see, when we covet, we're also implicitly questioning the goodness of God. So if you have your Bible still open, I encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3. So you remember Genesis 1 and 2. And God has created the heavens and the earth. He created Adam and Eve after his own image. He put them in the garden. He said, work, toil, labor, have dominion, cultivate. And God gave them one restriction, right? Don't eat from that tree. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the restriction he put upon them. And then we come to Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, verse 1, we hear, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Do you hear what happened? The serpent comes in, and he very, very slyly, very quietly whispers and introduces doubt into Eve's mind. You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That whisper God is withholding from you. That introduction of doubt into Eve's mind, God is withholding joy from you. He's withholding goodness from you. He's withholding happiness from you. And so what did Eve do? Well, she started to doubt. And in verse 6, we read, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired, what did she do? She ate. Now what's fascinating is that word for desired there, the Hebrew word is the same root for the Hebrew word found in Exodus 20, verse 17, that we translate to covet. Eve coveted 
that fruit. She wanted something that was not hers. She didn't believe that God was good in giving her this gift, in providing for her this restriction. You see, the serpent was right. God was withholding from them. But the withholding of this fruit was for their good. But Eve didn't believe that. She began to doubt God's goodness. And friends, we do this too. We do it with possessions like houses and cars and jobs, but we also do this with gifts, right? The gifts that God has given to other people, right? We say things like, why didn't God make me like him? Why didn't God give me that body? Why? Well, if, if God knew the circumstance that I was in today, and he knew the, the gifts that I had like I do, and he knew how those people were squandering their gifts and abilities, then surely God would have given me whatever it might be, fill in that blank. I mean, we think that. But when we think those thoughts, we are questioning the goodness of God. We're questioning God's ability to give good gifts. You see, they assume that God is going to give not good gifts, but he's going to withhold goodness from us. And yet, what does Jesus say in Matthew 7? Do you remember on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you, who are evil, know how to give God gifts, good, excuse me, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, look, even, even man knows that, that you are to shower your children with good things, that you are to give them good things. Everyone knows to do that. So how much more will your heavenly father, who knows what goodness is, shower you with those things when you ask? We need not question God's goodness, but we can have confidence in it. Not only that God knows how to give good gifts, but he actually does that he is giving gifts to us. But friends, when we covet, we're subtly questioning that. We're questioning his ability to know what is good for us because we think that it would be better if we had something else. But when we believe it, when we rest in God's goodness, we don't covet, but instead we find contentment. And that's how we battle, that's how we combat coveting, by being content. In Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul said, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He's learned how to be content. Did you hear it? In plenty and want, trial and joy, to be content. Think about the Apostle Paul. He had been shipwrecked and imprisoned. He had been stoned and beaten. And he can say, I can be content in all circumstances. How is it that he can be that way? We can be content first by being convinced of God's goodness. Being convinced of his goodness. I mean, even think about Exodus 20. The Ten Commandments, how do they begin? From ten weeks ago. Ten weeks ago, the prologue of Exodus 20. It doesn't begin with commandments, but it begins instead with God's grace and mercy, right? That's what he says in Exodus 20, verse 2. It says, I am the Lord your God 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God said, before he ever gave these commandments, I have rescued you, I have saved you. I heard your cries when you were in slavery, and I remembered my promises, and I delivered you. I made war against Pharaoh and his gods, and I have rescued you. God's goodness is on display in the fact that he did not leave his people in slavery and in bondage, but he rescued them. But it goes on, because he's not just going to leave them in the wilderness. Remember, that's where they are. They're in the wilderness wanderings. But he's moving them to a land. And they're going to enter into a land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where they will have homes that they did not build and vineyards that they did not plant and crops that are ready to be harvested. This is the goodness of God on display. That he's going to shower his people with goodness. I mean, think about the the Israelites coming out of slavery and they're hearing they're going to enter this land. They were slaves and now they are going to be free. They were slaves, they were in bondage, and they had nothing. And yet now, as they enter into the land, they will have everything God has promised. God's goodness that he shows to his people. He showed it to those people, but he also shows it to us. Because in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul tells us that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners... While we were enslaved, not to man, but we were enslaved to sin, God rescued us. He delivered us. He saved us from our sin by the death and resurrection of Christ. He gave rebels and covetors mercy and goodness. Friends, that's why we can be content with God. Because his goodness is on display, not just in the Exodus, but but in the cross. His goodness is shown to us. He has redeemed us and saved us. We know Romans goes on. We know it goes on for a number of chapters. In a few chapters after Romans 5 and Romans 8, Paul says, He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, the goodness of God doesn't stop with redemption. The goodness of God is shown in that he gives us good gifts. That's why we can be content, because he gives us the gifts that we need, the good gifts of God. And the first gift that he gives is the gift of himself. So in Hebrews chapter 13, there's this wonderful passage where the author of Hebrews takes up the discussion of contentment. And when he gets there, he says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I have to tell you, that's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It is a beautiful promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what God says to his people. I mean, in times of darkness, in times of sadness, in times of pain, in times of questioning, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what he says. I have said that to myself and to others maybe thousands of times. And it wasn't until this week that I realized the context in which he talks about it. Did you hear what the author of Hebrews said? You don't have to be in love with money and you can be content in everything. Why? Because God will be with you. Because God will never forsake you. You don't need anything that he has not given because he has given you the greatest gift anyone could give himself. 
And it's not just that God did that for us in Christ, but he did it for Israel as well. Do you remember the great covenant promise to God's people is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And as they go into the land, they're going to build a tabernacle and the glory cloud of God will descend upon it and fill the Holy of Holies and God will be with his people. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is why we can be content with all that God has given us. Because he has given us Christ. C.S. Lewis once said, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. And he's right. But I think we could say it even stronger. See, the person who has Christ and nothing else has infinitely more than the person who has the world but is lacking Christ. See, friends, we can be content because we have the greatest gift ever, and that is Christ. And out of this gift of Christ, God gives us everything that we need. That's what 2 Peter 1 tells us, that God has granted to us all that pertain to life and godliness. And in Ephesians 4, we're told that when Christ ascended, he led high, he led a high, excuse me, on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. That when Jesus ascended, he gave gifts to men. He poured upon us exactly what we need for life and for godliness. We need not covet what others have because God has given us exactly what we need. And so instead of coveting, let us celebrate the gifts of God in others. Let us, instead of longing for what others have, let us rejoice that God has showered them with good gifts. You know, I learned this uh, a number of years ago. I learned it the hard way because I was convicted by it. <laughs> it was my first year of seminary. And I have to tell you, uh, seminary and grad school, so for those of you who have been to grad school, you know this, it's not the, the smartest and brightest people who get the best grades, it's the people who can grind it out, right? It's the people who work hard and... and I mean, God made me that way. And so, uh, so seminary and grad school is a good place for people like me. <laughs> uh, and so I, I remember it was the first Greek exam. And I was, I was just going insane with studying. I mean, I was doing paradigm after paradigm and flashcard after flashcard. And I was going over all these translations. And I was going to knock this thing out of the park because it was actually the first exam in my entire seminary career. And how I did on this was going to set the trajectory for the next three years. I was convinced of that, right? And so I worked hard. And the exam came, and I felt pretty good about it. But if you're like me, if your personality is like me, um, you, you want to know immediately whether your uh, assumption was right or not. But unfortunately, Kat and I had to go out of town right after the exam because we were going to a funeral. And so, uh, so I thought, you know, this is probably good for my sanctification that I have to wait. But then after about a day, I got tired of waiting and being sanctified. So I called my friend. <laughs> I called my friend Corey and I said, Corey, can you go check my exam? Go tell me how I did. Please read it to me. Because the anticipation was killing me. And so my friend Corey, he went and gets the exam and he calls me. And sure enough, I did pretty well. I had one of the best grades in the class. Um, but you know what surprised me wasn't the grade. It was Corey's response to me. Corey didn't do as well as I did. And, uh, and Corey, instead of being resentful and angry, he genuinely celebrated for me. He was excited at my good grade. 
And the amazing thing is, is I started thinking about how I would have responded if the roles were reversed, and I can guarantee you, I would have been jealous. And I would have resented him. And I would have absolutely coveted what he had, and I did not. But not my friend. He taught me what it means to celebrate what other people have, even when we do not. He taught me the the goodness of finding complete content in who God is and how God has made us and in what God gives. My friend found happy contentment in that moment. And friends, when we are convinced of God's goodness to us, when we celebrate the gifts that he has showered on others, the home that they have, the job that they have been given, the abilities and strengths that God has equipped them with. We don't covet to find happy contentment. And that's the secret to avoiding coveting. It's finding happy contentment in God himself and in what he gives. You know, earlier I quoted Augustine when he said, surely happiness is what everyone wants. But he goes on beyond that. He says, for when I look for you, speaking to God, for when I look for you, who are my God, I am looking for a life of blessed happiness. Happiness is to rejoice in you and for you and because of you. This is true happiness and there is no other. Augustine is right. Friends, the way that we resist coveting and we find happy contentment is by being convinced and believing and celebrating the fact that we have been given a more valuable and greater gift, something of greater worth than this world could ever give. We have been given God and his son and his gifts. Amen. Father, we do ask that as we live in this world and as we live together, And we live as your people that you would help us to celebrate all that you have done and all that you have given. Help us to rejoice at your goodness and to find contentment in you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen.